You're listening to Lives on the Lines. Each episode of this podcast takes us on a journey along a Greater Anglia railway line through history, community, art and innovation. Thanks to the community rail partnerships that support the branch lines of East Anglia, we'll find out about the projects that are taking place to help the lines continue to thrive and make this a brilliant place to live, work and visit. I'm Catherine Kerr and this time we've got some miles to cover on the East Suffolk lines. This journey begins in Felixstowe, a fun seaside town with a pier and the UK's largest container port. But about 450 years ago, the site of an attempted invasion of England. Today, Landguard Fort guards the mouth of the River Orwell and the safe waters in the port of Harwich. It was here in 1667 that 1,500 Dutch marines were repelled. The harbour's been guarded since the time of Henry VIII, but in the 20th century, the remaining fortifications came into the hands of English heritage. It's now open to visit thanks to the Landguard Fort Trust. A bracing spot to begin our journey across the east of England today. We're going to make our way to Ipswich and north towards Lowestoft, crossing one of the most beautiful and varied landscapes in the UK. The East Suffolk line stretch nearly 61 miles and we'll be following them all the way. Together we'll find out about Anglo-Saxon funerals, inspirational landscapes, art and music and quirky market towns. And we'll finish our journey on the golden beaches of Lowestoft. Next stop will be Ipswich. This is a watery landscape. Here in Ipswich, the River Orwell emerges and begins to widen in its journey to meet the Store and the North Sea. This Suffolk County town boasts museums and art galleries, restaurants and shopping centres, but maritime history and trade stretches as far back as the 7th century. Today, the historic docks have been regenerated and the waterfront now buzzes with restaurants, a marina, trendy apartments and a university. On the London Main Line, Ipswich is also the changing point for the two East Suffolk lines. Here we get to relaxing comfort on board for a few minutes before we reach the market town of Woodbridge. I'll be back here later, but I'm staying on a few moments more as our next stop, Melton, is just a stone's throw away. Within a short walk of Melton Station lies one of the most important archaeological sites in Britain. Sutton Hoo is looked after by the National Trust. From up here you can see the glittering River Deben as it passes through the historic boat-building quay at Woodbridge. It's this geographical feature that is very important in our next story. Let's meet Laura Howarth, the Archaeology and Engagement Manager at National Trust Sutton Hoo. Laura, thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. Um, no, you're very welcome and uh, welcome to Sutton Hoof. <laughs> thank you. It's a beautiful morning. We're just wandering through the woods here. We're um, just coming off one of the Who's of Sutton Hoof. What's a who? Yes, very good question. So um, a who is a promontory or raised area of land often overlooking water. And there are several who's here at Sutton Who. So in front of us, we can see Tranmer House, which was where Mrs. Pretty, who was the landowner who instigated the archaeological investigations here in the 1930s, lived. So can you tell me why this place is so special? There were some pretty remarkable things discovered here from the 1930s onwards, right? Yeah. When people think about Sutton Who, if they know anything about it, they'll probably think about an amazing discovery that was made here in 1939. This was a ship burial, an Anglo-Saxon ship burial. A ship burial? Yeah. Buried in a ship? 
we say that um, Sutton Hoo was a discovery that changed history. Now that's a pretty bold statement to make, but it revolutionised our understanding of who the Anglo-Saxons were. So obviously archaeologists had discovered evidence of Anglo-Saxons before Sutton Hoo, but never before had the riches that were uncovered here in the Great Ship Burial had been seen before. So the Great Ship Burial was excavated in 1939. Archaeologists found the remains of this kind of very resplendent uh, funeral that had taken place here. So a 27-metre-long ship had been dragged up from the River Deben. So who were the Anglo-Saxons? Um, so the Anglo-Saxons, uh, it's maybe a, a period of history that people aren't as familiar with, but they slot in after the Romans. And we're looking at about kind of early 400s is when these groups of people come over and it's worth saying that they're not a fixed set of people it's a kind of blend of people that come over so it's uh, Angles, Saxons, Jutes and Franks and some Frisians in there as well and what they do is form this new culture and identity over here in England so it was during the Anglo-Saxon times later on that England as a nation was born so really we do feel the impact and the legacy of the Anglo-Saxons today in terms of our our language structures in society and so many other ways as well that's quite far down there yes they brought a 27 meter ship up that hill and just imagine the weight of that and the water weight as well of dragging that ship up to this high point and placing it in a kind of earthen kind of mound and then um, a burial chamber was constructed in the middle of the ship the deceased person possibly King Radwald but we don't definitely know was placed in there along with a vast array of different treasures objects that would accompany him on the next journey and then earth was heaped over this so you get these big piles in the landscape yes yeah, so um we have a series of burial mounds here each of them tells their own story you know it really did reflect the individual's kind of personality their character their status so we're just entering the royal burial ground now so i'll just grab the gate come on in <laughs> wow so we've stepped into this really uh, well it's a very open area that's quite windswept at the top of the hill or who very gorsy and i can see sort of pine trees flanking around and there are these enormous mounds who's who is this we've got a series of burial mounds here originally kind of 18 but one was later discounted so <laughs> okay um 18? Yes. These mounds originally would have been much higher, but over the years they've been ploughed down, so they're kind of gentle kind of hummocks in the landscape. So this would have been farmland well before. How did anyone get the idea that there was something worth looking at here in this field? Yeah, so um, Mrs Pretty, the landowner who lived here during the 1930s, instigated the digs. Now, that's not to say that other people hadn't investigated the mounds before. There'd been grave robbing attempts, antiquarians digging here but she was the one that really set into motion the chain of events that would lead to these discoveries. So I think also I kind of want to get across how interested she was in archaeology as well. She wasn't just a kind of bystander for all of these events. She sounds amazing. Yeah, a really remarkable woman. So we're going to have a little closer look now, because when we were starting with the biggest one, was this where the big boss was... uh was buried? No. Uh, a lot of people think that because it's the biggest. Mm. So this mound, Mound 2, or as we refer to it as the other ship burial. So two ship burials at Sutton Hoo. <laughs> now, Professor Martin Carver did some excavations here in the 1980s and 1990s. 
and they decided to um, rebuild this mound to what they think would have been its original height during the Anglo-Saxon period. And this is roughly what we think it would have potentially looked like when it was first constructed. That's really impressive. Burial grounds are so fascinating, aren't they, for for historians, archaeologists, because it gives you an insight not just into a pocket of history, but about how people lived, their cultures, their even their relationships, right? Exactly, and I think just drawing out kind of one example, I mean, some of the objects from the Great Ship Burial are from all over the world. So some of the garnets used in some of the treasures are thought to have come from Sri Lanka. Um, We've got kind of silverware from the eastern Mediterranean. The bitumen that was found in the ship may have come from as far away as Syria. And it just kind of puts a whole new kind of understanding on these people who were thought to be, you know, the dark ages, quite backwards, kind of crude people. Finds such as Sutton who really illuminated them as culturally sophisticated, well-connected, took great pride in their appearance. So archaeology is really kind of the key to unlocking the voices from the past. The grave to our uh, left-hand side is the burial of a warrior, probably a man in kind of his early 20s. He is buried with um, his horse, his sword, his shield, but also some nice personal touches, such as a bag of lamb chops in case he got hungry on the way. That's so thoughtful. On yeah, the way to the other side. <laughs> exactly. And then um, a detail that I always quite like is that he was buried in a coffin. And then it seems like the funeral, at the very last minute, one of the uh, funeral goers threw a bone hair comb into the grave because it was standing upright when archaeologists found oh, really? it. I like to think it was maybe his mum that threw it in at the very last minute as, you know, oh, we'd forgotten this, but, you know, a reminder to keep clean and tidy and presentable in the next life. This next mound has something sticking out of it. Yes, yeah, so we, are, we have now arrived at the Great Ship Burial. The bits that are sticking out of the end of the mound uh, denote the ends of the ship that were buried here. The ship was made from timber. Was that still surviving? It wasn't, and that's a really good point to make. We have very acidic, sandy soil here in Suffolk. Mm-hmm. Uh, water would have gradually seeped in over the kind of 1,300 years it laid buried. It's quite a while. And um, it created an acid bath which would have meant over time, gradually, most of the organic material rotted away. So what archaeologists uncovered in 1939 was not a ship as such, it was the fossil of a ship. One of the photographers that was here, uh, a lady called Mercy Lack in 1939, referred to it really nicely as the ghost of a ship. So when you look at a lot of the photos, it looks like a ship because it's got that kind of shape to it but actually the timber has rotted away and you can see lots of rusty iron rivets in position. It's very moving to stand here as well. Like when I arrived here this morning, before many of the visitors had arrived, it was very still. I could just watch a hawk dipping up and down and watch the wind blowing across the grounds here. There's something that feels very eternal. Yeah, and I think Sassenhu means so much to lots of different people. We've got a fantastic kind of nature offer here as well. You know, we're home to one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, but a fantastic kind of array of different wildlife as well. But there is something quite spiritual about Sattenhu, and I mean that in a very broad sense of the word, because for some people it will hold different significance, but there is something quite tranquil about it, and you do feel quite special standing here, something you can feel that special things happened here. What a haunting piece of history comes to life here at Sattenhu. 
If you'd like to visit, you can make arrangements beforehand and check opening times using the National Trust website. On my way back down to the station, I decided to take a walk around the estate. Following it back down to the bridge that crosses the River Deben, I carried on all the way along the water. The tide was out and a few boats squatted in the silty bed. Mudflats were dotted with oyster catchers, gulls and redshank. Walkers and wader watchers chatted to me along the way. Arriving into Woodbridge along the water allows you to catch an echo of the shipbuilding heritage that thrived here in the 1400s. A tide mill has stood for over 800 years on the river here, and this beautiful building has been restored and opened to visitors too. Back on board now and we're heading in the right direction again. We pass through several historic towns. From Wickham Market, you can reach the stunning Deben Valley and Old Valley Walks. And Saxmundham Centre is crammed with shops, restaurants and picturesque buildings. Let's disembark at Darsham now. We're taking a short taxi ride to the coast and the seaside village of Walmswick. That's where we're meeting local artist Michael Bullen. Michael has a studio in Halesworth and lives along the line in Wickham Market. But Walmswick Beach holds a special magic for him. Michael, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. We're at the end of the uh, at the end of the harbour on the quay. There's a lot of people around because it's the height of tourist season. Why have you chosen this spot for us to meet? Warbleswick was a place I came to in 1993 when I was uh, I was living in the south of France and I visiting some friends and uh, I drove my car around just here by this building got my uh, paints out and did a painting and just had a sense that it's where I wanted to be. There's something timeless about it. A lot of the old fishermen were still around and, um, and I got to know them, got talking with them and uh, it just had a sense of, of unchanged life really that, 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 that really appealed to me, especially as I've been living abroad for quite a long time and uh, it had an essence of, of, of Englishness that I loved. So every summer you're sort of in residence here? Yeah, every, from, from uh, the end of May till first, second week of July. Yeah. And it's been the inspiration really for most of what I do. You know, the, the, when you're here at any time of day, five o'clock in the morning with the sun rising and the mist, or in the evening when the ha, which is the sea mist that comes in, it comes in. The ha. Uh, yes, it's H-A-A-R, sometimes called the fret. Oh, but wow. it's the sea mist that comes in over the sea four or five feet high, and it just comes across mysteriously and then drifts around the bottoms of the buildings. That must be so haunting. And it's so haunting. It's like being in a Sherlock Holmes scene with this mist swirling around the bottoms of the the wooden buildings and the sun rises across the the, the estuary, comes up there. And when there's mist as well, you get this beautiful ethereal light that comes through. So the light is something that you hear a lot of artists talk about or write about in this particular part of the world what is it well i think a lot of it's to do with the fact that you can see it i mean there's nothing that you can see for miles mm. so the light at the bottom of the sky is so often the best because that's where the sunrise color is and the sunset color and if you're in a flat landscape you can see it all to the bottom mm, so so we're going to go for a little yeah, walk lovely. aren't we around the lovely, yeah when there's floods, the water comes up to the top of the bridge and then drops down here and, and, and goes underneath this building. It, it'll probably come over a couple of, two or three times a year. I mean, it's mm. high today, it's very mm. high today. You can see that, that it's actually got to the bottom of the bridge and um, it's, over, it's coming over the, the little wooden defences on the side of the river there. Sure. People have parked in the car park and then the tides come up and there's been a, 
been people running across <laughs> across here to try and get their cars. So if you're visiting, bring a paddle. Yeah, bring a paddle, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and the town is sort of set back, isn't it? So you've got this area here, but there's also a beach. Yeah, there's a, a very, very up, a lovely sandy beach, actually, a really sandy beach. It's eroded quite a lot in mm. the 25 years I've been coming here. Right back in the in, in sort of 200 BC, this was all in the sea. The sea where came, we're standing now. Yes, where we're standing. The sea came right in here. And it wasn't until this spit of sand gradually formed along here that this was enclosed and then, and then became part of the, the village. But before that, this was all, all part of a, a large bay. So one day we may go back to that, I guess. But, uh, a flux. Yes, my, my, studio, my studio haven will be lost. Well, you'll just have to float. It's made of wood, isn't it? It's made of wood, yeah. Mm-hmm. But this, this one, when it was first done up, they, they did it up and put polystyrene underneath it to keep the warmth in, but, but soon realised that they'd actually built a boat. <laughs> so. so you've just come over Wally's Bridge. Is that a crabbing bridge? Um, it's full of people who are... Very much water. so. And Wally was a great old character in, in Warble Street. Wow, the sun's come out and the water's Beautiful glittering. Light. The glittering, yeah. But when you get the um, light like this with the dark clouds behind, you get a beautiful contrast between the sparkling water and the dark, dark cloud. I You've mean, got it's, this sort of acidy green, bright yellow. Yeah, well, you get glasses, you get then. a lot of um, samphire growing here. Well, it's pretty incredible for wildlife around here. There Fabulous are um, several RSPB reserves along the, the coast. There are there, well. Here particularly, because you've got so many different habitats, you've got freshwater wetlands in there, which is behind the sea defences, you've got the sea, you've got estuary life, you've got the reeds and the, and the, and the marshland and the heathland behind. So you literally, it's literally a you know, bird watch's paradise, really. Watercolour is your main medium, isn't it? It suits me, it suits my sort of... Um, when I've got an idea for something, I want, to, I want to get it down as quickly as possible. I find if I, if I take a long time over a painting, I lose some of that initial excitement. Actually, I suppose that works really well because as we're walking along the beach here, the sky has changed about three or four times already. The light is, I mean, with the wind, the clouds are constantly moving. Yeah, so. I haven't found many places where I you know, really connect to in the same way. Mm. Have a, strange really, there's no, um, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You just get a sense of somewhere being your place. Well, what a beautiful place to belong. I know. This harbour area here with the estuary and Danny, who's the ferry girl who I got to know well, and all the people around here who I got to know well, it feels like its own little community in a way, you mm. know, and uh, has its own life down here, which is part of Warblesick, but also has, its, has a separate feel as well. It's a crossing point to Southwold across the River uh, Blythe estuary there. It's just a little rowing boat. Danny Church rows it. Yeah, her family have have uh, run the ferry, I think, four or five generations. Mm. Michael, we've come back across Wally's Bridge, but I'm a little concerned because there, there's now a lot of water where we previously walked. I, I think we're technically marooned. Mm. Um, we're going to have to jump, right? I, We're going to have to jump. If you actually wait until the, the, that goes down... You wait. There's water washing Just wait. through. Then... No. Now? <laughs> 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 perfect, perfect. Yes, I've only got one wet so foot. So, <laughs> if we knew what the time the high tide was, as you can see, it's starting to seep into the car park. In fact, oh, it's in the car park over there. What, what was interesting when I first exhibited here, that some of the real old characters, like young Bob, who was, who was 90, I think, at the time, he'd been the ferryman back at the beginning of last century, and he would, he would sit and chat to me and tell me all the stories 
and about what causes the flooding. What the, you get the northwesterly wind and the full moon, and then you get flooding. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic wandering around today. I've seen so much in just our short walk and learned so much. Brilliant. It's been a real pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Where can people find out a bit more about your work and see some of your beautiful watercolours? Oh, well, there's my website, which is www.michaelbullen.co.uk or Instagram at michaelbullenwatercolours. Chatting to Michael revealed what a hub of creativity and inspiration the landscape here has fostered. This coastline has inspired so many generations of artists and composers, the most famous perhaps being Benjamin Britten. One of the 20th century's greatest composers, he was born in Lowestoft, lived along the line here in Snape, and then settled in Aldborough, founding the now famous annual Aldborough Festival in 1948. Not far from Wickham Market Station is Snape Maltings, the Barley Maltings house that Britten and his peers converted into a concert hall in the 1960s. This world-renowned arts venue attracts visitors from far and wide and is a key part of the annual festival. Taking refuge from the windy coastline on the comfy new Greater Anglia trains, we're stopping at a real hidden gem next. Ladies and gentlemen, now arriving into Halesworth. Halesworth is a market town with layer upon layer of stories in its stones. Fortunately, we're meeting local historian Dave Woolweaver for a guided tour. Dave's lived in Halesworth for 20 years and has written two books on the area. He's trustee at the museum here and chair of the town council. Dave, it's lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. We've just walked through the museum and had a wander around and look at some of the pieces in there. It's right on the station building as well, it which is, is very convenient. The, the uh, museum is in the old station building and there's lots of interest in there, including the magnificent hoard of Bronze Age axe heads from a village called Wissett, which is about two miles from Halesworth, and all sorts of other things of local interest and a model of Tudor Halesworth, which shows really that the layout of the town hasn't changed a lot since in 500, 600 years. Yeah, so it's, it's a small town and we're going to have a walk around it today, but the history is by no means little. No, it's a, it's, it's a real hidden gem and the more you go into the history, the more there is. It's a, it's a place with a lot of historical interest, but it doesn't receive quite the attention of some of our um, neighbours on the coast, such as Southwold or, or, or Aldborough or places like that. Why do you think that is? I think that some people who come on holidays don't tend to venture the other side of the A12. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd encourage them to do so because there's, there's lots of interest away from the seaside. Yeah, well, if you're coming by rail, you get to see so much of it as well. Well, you do, yes. You can miss it from the yes. road. Yes. There's a couple of big malting buildings there are. we've already seen yes. on our walk down from the station. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, the, the, the key thing about these buildings is to do with really the drying and the preparation of malt. Right. So you've got these huge, great big spaces in there where they lay the malt out and let it germinate. So that's why they're, they're, they're so huge. But basically, the Dargentine family... Um, and a guy called Richard D'Argentine, who was a crusader and lord of the manor here, got a market off King Henry III in 1223. 
uh, the town grew because it was a market town. So, so it you had say a, this guy got a market? Yeah. He was given a market? Uh, well, no, he had to pay King Henry a fee for the market, and that was two palfreys, which are small horses. Oh. So he had to give King, King Henry III two horses, and King Henry said, thank you, you can have a, a charter now to run a market in your manor town. Must have been nice horses. <laughs> So what's the community like here, Dave? You must meet a lot of um, people, work with a lot of people on yeah, your role as a councillor. It's a very strong sense of community, I think, in, in Halesworth. And it, it, there's a slight quirkiness as well to, to Halesworth as well. So we're ducking under the road and following the, the canal way along uh, some lovely landscape gardens. Yes. This is taking us towards the thoroughfare, which is our high street. I see which has lots of small independent shops. It's one of the major selling points that Halesworth has maintained a traditional-looking high street with small independent shops. Oh, wow! So we've just emerged onto the high street. It's buzzing, people having coffee, yes. doing their shopping. We're going to duck out <laughs> the way here. <laughs> yeah. We're looking at a row of maybe Tudor? Yeah. They're sort of late 1500s. They've got that sort of wobbly timber look to them. Yes. Um, <laughs> Very well kept, though, I must this, say. This one, the toy shop one, has been restored back to how it would have been originally. But the real feature here is the carved beam or bresima. Um, so this is on the ancient house, which is now a bistro, yeah, but is. on the outside there's all these figures on it. What, what, are they, what do they mean? <laughs> I, think, I think it's puzzled people down the ages as to what exactly the symbology of this is. But through the studies that I did for the book, I have two basic theories, really. One of which is these are all characters from a medieval book about a character called Reynard the Fox. Reynard the Fox? Yeah, Reynard the Fox is this uh, medieval folklore fox and he basically lampoons the aristocracy and the clergy and he's a bit of a naughty fox as he's well. He's a bit he's of a troublemaker by the sly sense, and right? devious and he is a troublemaker. <laughs> um, so um, what we can see there is a fox with a basket oh, and yeah, there he is we on the think right. that is Reynard. Now the character next to it is uh, we're pretty certain now it's something called an ape physician. Right. Now, so it's a sh- it's sort of like a pot-bellied figure that's holding up some kind of bottle of potion. Uh, well, it's uh, unfortunately not a bottle of potion. It's a urine bottle. And oh. In medieval times, there's lots of manuscripts which illustrate doctors, and they're holding up a bottle and examining it, and they're examining the colour of the urine which was used to diagnose illness and the figure here is lampooning the medical profession because it's actually an ape oh right how nice (laughs) lucky lucky quack doctor who's an ape is that his cat next to him there uh it might be a cat although there is a theory that it might be a beaver at the time of this carving beavers were still about in the british isles and certainly locally and the story of the beaver is mixed up with how the medievals interpreted wildlife. They hunted beavers for the medicinal properties of their testicles. Oh, beaver testicles. Uh, now that's the, a new the, one. The, 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 the image one. here, the image here is uh, perhaps suggesting that the beaver cut off uh, or basically bit off its um, bits to basically stop it being hunted and it's possibly a comment on disease but the way to work with disease is not to see a rubbish doctor but to pray to god because if you were virtuous then the disease would leave you alone
I see. I mean, for a for a beautifully carved wooden panel, this is telling us a lot more. It's, it, it, it's very, very interesting. What, what I find incredible is that this is just one building. We've accessed so many stories <laughs> along yes. here. So we've just come around the corner to a pub called The Angel. This is a 16th century coaching inn and on some of the work I've been doing on a series of Victorian letters it features quite a few times about people meeting in The Angel and picking up coaches outside The Angel so it was really uh, quite a hub of the town. There was actually a corn exchange around the back of the building so they would have been wheeler dealing and people would basically alight here and probably packages and parcels would be left here. This is St Mary's Church. I don't know whether you're into things like green men, um, but... Um, never say a... never. <laughs> Not come across one myself. Um, on the font in St Mary's Church, there is quite a, a... Well, it's not necessarily rare for Suffolk, but it's rare for the rest of the UK, of the green man with a club holding up the font, which is quite strange because you'd normally think of it being a bit pagan, but we think it represented man's innocence or something like that in the Garden of Eden. Oh, we're not entirely sure, but it is quite a common feature in a lot of um, local churches that you get these fonts and green men appear all over the place in carvings. We've just ducked down Rectory Lane, though. Yes, and this is a lovely little path that leads back past the river. And it also features something called a crinkle-crankle wall, which is quite a <laughs> Suffolk thing, which you'll see in a moment. Yeah, here, here we go. There's a, a story that during the war there were lots of American air bases, and there's a story that people would come down here, and in every one of these little hollows there would be a GI snogging his English girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so the crinkle crackle wall basically is a is a, a sort of undulating. Yes. They look like yes. sort of wave shapes, but um, there's lots of helpful nooks for, yes. for you to get up to mischief in. <laughs> that one's even got a door in it. Yes. Oh, back over the water. Yep. Isn't isn't this lovely? You know, you just uh, in the middle of the town, but you in almost feel like you're in the middle of the countryside. <laughs> you really do, walking alongside the water. <laughs> We're so lucky to have, you know, all these amazing buildings in in, in in Halesworth. It really is a hidden gem, so it thanks is. so much for showing me a few of them today. That's okay. Well, after that whirlwind history tour of Halesworth, it's back to the station for our last leg of the journey to Lowestoft. And we've got some company. Trevor Garrett has been living and working along the East Suffolk line for most of his life, and he's joining us to share a few more of its secrets. Trevor, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks for joining me at Halesworth. So we're heading down to Lowestoft today, aren't we? Yes. I moved to Lowestoft when I was 10 in 1957. So, of course, I knew the line when it was steam hauled. <laughs> By the end of the 1950s, diesels were taking over more and more of the services, of course. Wow. And I suppose the line's got a little bit faster and perhaps a bit more comfortable to travel on as well. So how's life changed along the line in your time? When the line was built in the 1850s, most people worked on the land, of course. They worked on farms. You had fishing industry in the northern end of the, of the, of the area, and even down at Ipswich, it was a manufacturing town, often linked with the agricultural industry. Now, only a small minority of people work on the land, of course, so they need perhaps to travel more 
to study and to work. And people come from all over to visit this part of the world as well, right? Yes. You could trace the tourism right back to the 19th century, of course, but then not everyone could afford to take a holiday. When you get into the 20th century, yes, most people had holidays with pay. Resorts like Lowestoft therefore grew as well because they were easy to get to by train. And the Norfolk Broads. We shall go through Oldham Broad South, which is an important boating centre. We shall also go through Beckles, and you can have boating holidays from Beckles on the River Waveney as well. I think Beckles is our next stop, isn't it? It is, yes. <laughs> um, Trees and farmland all around, isn't it? That's right, that's right. A little bit later on, you'll have marshland as well when we get the other side of Beckles. So it's still a relatively lightly populated area. People can come here and get away from the big city. But what do you do with your leisure time? Well, one of the things I do actually is work as a volunteer in the Tourist Information Centre here at Lowestoft and the station. And another thing which I do is work as a volunteer in the East Anglia Transport Museum, about four miles from the centre of Lowestoft. And it's where you can ride on a tram, a trolley bus, a vintage diesel bus, and a narrow-gauge railway. I'm sold. And as we leave Beckles, you'll see we're going back onto a single track now. But the countryside is changing. It's become flat. Oh, yes. We're in the valley of the River Waveney, which is about half a mile to the north of us. Ah. Across there in the distance is Norfolk. You can see for miles. You really can. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, the Waveney for forms the boundary between the North Folk and the South Folk. <laughs> yeah, because you see, the East Angles, the people who gave this area its name, they came across in the, what, 5th, 6th, 7th century AD from what is now Schleswig-Holstein in North Germany. And they settled here, but they divided themselves into two groups, the North Folk, or Nordfolk, and the Südfolk, or the South Folk. So, uh, and the River Waverley effectively divided them. Historically, as we pull into Lowestoft, we're seeing more and more industrial buildings. Exactly, the, the, that's the, right. There's a that's huge right. fishing heritage, the fishing industry. That's right, that's right. What this town grew yes, up around. Yes, but also a cargo port. Well, we've arrived here in Lowestoft and Trevor, you've taken me into the tourist office here, which is very conveniently located almost on the station platform. That's right. Like a lot of stations, there were redundant parts of the building, redundant rooms and so on. And the Community Rail Partnership and the Lowestoft Central project have refurbished part of the station building that was no longer required for railway purposes. So we now have a large tourist information office which is also like a small shop. And next to it, the former parcels office is an exhibition hall and a meeting room that will seat 50 people. Well, it's great to arrive somewhere that feels so buzzing as well and nice to yes. see these beautiful buildings being used in so many yes. different ways for the community. And, and there's a lot of people running the office here are volunteers, aren't they? Yes, like indeed, yourself. indeed, that's right. So where would you recommend I head next on my journey around Lowestoft? If you go north you will come to the old town, about a mile from the station. Near the old town, you've also got the Sparrow's Nest, which is a park with a maritime museum in it. Fantastic. If, on the other hand, you go south from here, you'll go across the Harbour Bridge 
and you'll go into the part of the town which was developed from the mid-19th century onwards, which was the traditional holiday area, and you will see great big Victorian houses fronting the Esplanade and a long, broad, sandy beach. That sounds brilliant. Well, I don't know where to start, but thank you for those (laughs) options. (laughs) Trevor, it's been lovely to meet you. Likewise, likewise. Thanks a lot. Trevor is an absolute font of knowledge about this line, and I loved hearing how he's seen the transition from steam to the super-comfortable brand-new trains we rode on today. In addition to the time he spends volunteering at the Tourist Information Office at Lowestoft, Trevor is part of the East Suffolk Travel Association. They work with community rail partnerships, Greater Anglia and local authorities to improve travel and connections in the area. They're also responsible for the handy leaflets you'll find at some stations. I'm really impressed by the number of people that volunteer on community rail projects to keep their stations smart and welcoming to visitors all along these lines. It really is something that strikes you along the way. Even the smallest station on the line, Brampton, is bright with tubs of flowers. Well, that brings this episode to a close. I'm sitting here on the sand at Lowestoft, the pier to my left, gazing east across the seas and skies which birthed the music of Britain and have inspired and continue to inspire countless artists, musicians and writers to this day. Me? I've got a mic in one hand and an ice cream in the other, so I'm happy. Together we've travelled from the UK's busiest shipping port to connect with the rest of the world. We've heard how local trade and agriculture use water, rail and road to reach the world over centuries. We've contemplated lives and afterlives and looked across the centuries from Sutton Hoo. We've heard about religion, subversion, suppression and humour from other times. And we've met some of the most fantastic people along the way. Thanks to everyone who's chatted to me on my journey. Well, that may be it from the East Suffolk line, but I'll be back again beginning here in Lowestoft on another journey. Next time on Lies on the Lines, we travel onwards from Lowestoft to the Norfolk Broads. We had something called Marshman. Marshman would would look after the land. They would make sure the land was being drained and the ditches were cleared and the cattle were tended. We obviously still have a lot of agriculture in the area, but a lot of people locally have seasonal jobs. They work in the tourism industry. You can find out more about the brilliant work of the Community Rail Partnerships and Travelling with Greater Anglia at greateranglia.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed our journey today, make sure you share this podcast with a friend. See you next time.